You've got to go have something to put in front of people to truly understand if your intuition and thesis is shared and to be able to sort of shift or pivot to really meet what the customer is telling you. Welcome in to Studying Success. On this podcast, I interview investors and entrepreneurs who tell us about their life, the ins and outs of their industries, and the different ways that they have found success. Thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you guys? Very well, thanks. Great. Thank you for having us. We're looking forward to this. Now, I have to say, this is the first duo that I've had on the podcast. How does it feel? (laughs) (laughs) We like being the first. (laughs) (laughs) So let's just jump right into it. What do you guys do? What's y'all's business about? Mark, you go ahead. So Fabulingua is a language learning platform based on a mobile game that teaches kids New languages like Spanish or Mandarin, or maybe if they don't speak English, learning English through interactive stories. And we've developed a method. In fact, Leslie developed a method that she has a patent on that allows for you to sort of like invisibly subconsciously learn a language while you're reading these stories. Wow. How did you get involved in that business? Where did this idea come from? It came from my experience. I was raised in Spain and my family's from Venezuela. I live in the United States and I really wanted my kids to have access to you know, part of their heritage and language is very much part of it. But I started teaching them late. Well, my son was two. And I found that there were very few resources out there to teach young kids a second language in a way that was really substantial. And that wasn't like very token. Like, oh, most of the stuff out there would like teach you colors or teach you numbers. And then they'd kind of, there'd be nothing until you then had to wait to be old enough to, I don't know, use a tool like Duolingo. But by then you already have to you know, know how to read and write your native language. So there was really nothing really substantial on the market. So I developed something for my own kids. It was an analog version for a long time. And then at some point I found out that it was super effective and then thought of turning it into something that I could share with other parents. How did you guys get started? Did you have any backgrounds in tech or teaching that allowed you to have knowledge to start this company? Well, I'm a super nerd. I'm the nerdiest of all nerdy moms. And so even though I'm not a teacher, I would say I'm probably a frustrated teacher. So for me, finding the best way to teach my kids a second language when there was just nothing on the market for kids to learn a second language. I just got super nerdy about it. And it's amazing. You can, you know, if you choose to go deep enough, you can kind of develop expertise, even if you're not officially speaking a teacher and you can think about things quite creatively. So really for me, it was my journey and wanting to solve this problem for me because no one else was solving it. Well, I would also add that Leslie does speak almost five languages. So her mother was Norwegian and definitely spoke six or seven languages. So she's got a sort of a linguistic background and has benefited from it personally, professionally, in so many ways in her life experience. The other thing I would say is that, you know, and I do come from sort of tech startup background. So I've been involved in building several companies in tech software space. So basically, my experience in that arena and Leslie's call it domain experience around languages is kind of how this came together. Yeah. And looking back, you know, it's interesting, like back in college, I was doing my thesis and stuff like that was around kids and how they learn a language. I just didn't know it would end up pointing in this direction several decades later. So at the time, it felt disconnected to what I'm doing now. But clearly, the interest was there, you know, from an early 
early age. So you did a bunch of research. You guys had the background. So where did you go after having this idea? What was next in the process? Leslie saw an opportunity based on her own personal experience of trying to find a solution and and being frustrated. So she decided to do a deep dive into children's language learning. And as a result, she identified a unique sort of gap in the market and saw that the solution that she was bringing was you know, differentiated. And so she did a full-on market analysis, business plan, deep dive. She's very research-oriented. And as a result, we both said, you know what, let's build something and put it out there and test it and talk to other families and parents. Do they also have this problem? Are they also seeing this? Are they also frustrated? And that's typically called a customer discovery study in sort of entrepreneur speak. And it's really important to do because you need to know your market first before you build anything. You need to know that the market needs a product or you need to be convinced that your product is going to be either unique or such a market improvement on what's out there that it will find resonance and you know find customers. And so that's what we did. And it was confirmed. It was confirmed that this frustration exists, confirmed that there was a gaping need in the market. The interesting thing, though, Will, is that we had only identified the gaping need amongst sort of parents and families. And over the course of building the product and testing it and having it out in the market, we learned that there was also a gaping need amongst teachers, language teachers, that they were frustrated by the fact that they were using sort of 40-year-old content 40-year-old curriculum, we're having to reach into their own pockets to, to find new content, something to engage their students. And they found Fabulingua and they said, wow, this is so new, so different, so unique, so engaging. I want this for my class. So all of a sudden we learned, hey, wait, our market isn't just parents and families going directly to them, like through the app store. We need to also focus in on teachers because teachers really need us as well. And also teachers have this added benefit of having a giant group of customers or our students that they serve. So it's this opportunity to get a one-to-many you know, distribution channel, which is super cool. And we can help teachers and teachers you know, deserve our help and we want to provide it. So after having done the market validation, how did you build the MVP and later on the final product? Like Mark, did your tech background help in that or did you have to go secure funding like how did that work not at all my tech background did not help at all there that's just being resourceful and finding somebody because i'm not a software engineer i've worked at sort of technology companies but you needed somebody who actually can develop the product and so that's when it just takes hustle and resourcefulness and that was leslie yeah so our very first mvp i actually built on, on google slides with the millions of layers that you can do on Google Slides. And I kind of faked a little story, uh, took it to... It was actually PowerPoint. It was PowerPoint, yeah. Took it to a kid up the street whose parents were very interested in him learning a second language. And within two seconds, he'd broken it. And he had just tapped so many things that I was like, wow, this kid's expectation of how interactive the story is, is kind of through the ceiling. It's way more than I had anticipated. And so very quickly, as it happened, so one of the biggest gaming engines in, in the world is called Unity. And Unity was having a, by coincidence, in Austin, they had their big kind of annual conference. So I went to that. And within like two seconds, I was like, okay, this is the platform we need to build it on. Because 
it's clear it has to be extremely interactive. So once we knew we were on Unity, then that shrinks the world of who develops on Unity. And I just got on LinkedIn and found a developer who's now a professor of basically this at UT, but at the time she wasn't. And I said to her, hey, will you do a prototype for us? And she spent probably, it was seven months or something building that prototype. And we just fine-tuned it. And it was one story with our methodology. And she was amazing. And then once we had that, we had something to test in front of kids. We then went out and tested that prototype. We spent two weeks in Denver with a company that is an expert in testing ed tech products on children. And I put little sensors on their feet to see how excited they got and glasses on their eyes to see where they looked and we were able to really take the feedback of the children and really fine tune what our product in a huge way. And a lot of that formed the kind of core of what we still even have today. And so it's basically this been a cycle of building something, testing it, building, testing, and that kind of thing. Yeah, that's the lesson. I was going to say, that's the lesson. You've got to go have something to put in front of people to truly understand if you're intuition and thesis is shared. And then also to be open-minded enough to see where there are big gaps in your thinking and to be able to sort of shift or, or pivot to really meet what the customer is telling you it needs to be a part of your product. And it was kind of really interesting at the time because this group of basically a company of two people, you know, they were kind of like a combination game designer and tester. So they were able to do a lot of what's called paper prototyping. So right there, you'd be able to respond to the child that was testing something in front of you. And you're like, oh, it doesn't quite work. How about if we did this? And we would like literally set out a game with like pieces of paper. Like, what if this was dropping here? What would you want to do with it? And they, then we'd see how they would react to literally the paper version of an idea. And we had maybe 10 paper games and we found, oh, two of them work better. And that, you know, the investment was zero dollars because it was a piece of paper and just a pen, right? And you're able to really kind of go down a better road earlier when you test earlier and you do these sort of paper prototypes of, they don't even have to be sophisticated prototypes of what you're trying to do. Yeah, so will you guys be doing more B2B and selling to the schools or B2C and selling to the kids and their parents or a mixture of the two? It's a unique model called B2B2C, and that's not a joke, which is essentially the teachers are our distribution channel, but also really an important customer. If we can bring the teachers a dashboard or a set of tools that make it really easy for them to use Fabulingua, then they are going to get Fabulingua in the hands of the kids, at which point Fabulingua, the mobile game, takes over, which we believe is going to be really fun and engaging for the kids. So that feedback mechanism is going to be for the teachers like, wow, look, the kids are totally excited about the stuff that we're teaching, the things we're doing. That feels great. And then, you know, kids will be taking it home as well because teachers will not only use it in class, but creating sort of out of class assignments. So the parents will learn about this. The parents at that point will also be quite enthusiastic about the fact that their kids are learning a second language and seem to only want to do that particular homework because it's fun for them. So it creates a sort of virtuous circle. So we've got sort of really two important customers, which is putting the teachers at the center of the value proposition and starting with them, but also making sure that the engaging sort of game we're building is well-received by kids. Leslie, I'm really interested in the system that you created. How did you get it patented? And I don't think I fully understand what the method was. Could you quickly explain that again? The only thing 
the research is super clear and it's not really contested anymore amongst language learning linguists. This is pretty well accepted that the only thing that matters when learning a second language is the amount of input to the brain as opposed to output. So it's not about how much are you practicing speaking or writing. That really doesn't move the needle a lot. It might give you some satisfaction, but it doesn't actually really massively. It's, this is kind of counterintuitive right? and kind of hard to wrap your brain around. Like actually the most important thing is input. So long as it's a very specific kind of input, which is comprehensible input. So long as you somewhat understand the gist of that input. So if it's gibberish and you don't understand any of it, I mean, I don't speak a word of Russian. If I was to listen to a Russian radio station for a year, it wouldn't really move the needle of my Russian. But if in some way you can make that comprehensible, then the more of that input you have, the more language learning occurs. Because it turns out there's a part of your brain that humans have evolved, which is if you get that quality input, you will learn. So what we discovered that my analog methodology that I invented with my kids that was really effective, what it was doing is it was creating a, a huge amount of comprehensible input through children's stories. So we were using children's stories, which children naturally like, in order to create a lot of comprehensible input. And I did that through interweaving a translation into the reading of the input. So I would read the story. It would only be in Spanish. Nothing was written in English. And I would mimic the intonation of how I read it in Spanish, in English, in these certain chunks. And it was very much about how it's chunked that was where the patent came in, right? And so, for example, it would say, El perro se fue. The dog went a la playa, to the beach. Y se encontró, and he met un tiburón, a shark. You know, and then the kid is like, what happened with the shark? You know, like, they don't care that it was in English, not English. But the only text that they're seeing that's logging in through the, their visual field is the Spanish. And nonetheless, they understand it in English. But the minute the translation is over, because it's oral, it just leaves you with a gist of the meaning without giving you the crutch of a written translation. And it very much used, I mean, I used to be a simultaneous translator back in college. I used to do these field trips to Latin America, research trips, and I was the only translator in the team. So I got really good at doing this sort of simultaneous translation on the fly. I'd do it for like eight hours at a time. So it was kind of using that as a way to make input comprehensible. Now, there's a lot of other ways that are used by teachers every day to make input comprehensible. You know, there's a lot of pointing, there's a lot of acting, and that's what oftentimes makes a good teacher is that she's got these really good skills of making input comprehensible. But there's a limit to how much acting and pointing you can do. And the good thing about stories is it just blows open the amount of vocabulary and circumstances and whatever that you can talk about. And so we're making much more wider range of input comprehensible by using stories with this methodology. Anyway, there's also a lot more to it, but give or take, that's it. And on the market, there's actually not even, even in the adult world, there's not many methodologies out there that are based around comprehensible input. So when I first started this, I was working on this on my own and, and Mark was very encouraging. He's like, hey, you should go write a business plan. So I went off and wrote it. You know, taking a patent out, it's kind of like doing a small PhD. So you're doing this extremely deep dive because you don't get a patent unless you can show there's academic research in your area and how you are improving upon 
the nuanced academic research in that like little sliver of life. So it's like an incredibly deep dive. I had no idea how like how academic it really would be to take a patent out. But kind of like most things I do, just did it full throttle. And you're really making a case to the patent office. This is based on, you know, the academic science out there. And then you have to show all the people who could possibly be in this space and show that none of them are doing this unique thing that you are. So it's really like a big review as to what everybody out there is doing. And you're just giving all of these case studies, having created the sort of framework around which you're thinking. So in actual fact, it was one of the best things we could have done for our company because we became, after that patent application, we were truly experts in that field. Like, I don't think many other people know quite as much about the field as we did. And, you know, then you do have to hire a patent lawyer to turn it into patentees, you know, because that's a whole different language. And they really earn their keep there. I mean, they manage to turn it into something that I don't think most normal people could do. You need a patent lawyer. So that requires some capital to do that. And then it requires many over the course of like, it takes many years. I think we applied for it in 2018. We got it in 2022. So it took four years and they read it all, look at all your stuff, and they come back with questions, and you answer those. And so it goes back and forth a few times. Unfortunately, I would say for education, there's not a whole lot of utility patents out there. There's a lot of design patents that are easier to get because it's just, oh, I just designed this, as opposed to this is a new method. So I think that says much more about our educational innovation than it does about anything else. Whereas in medicine, there's a lot of innovation, you know, (laughs) constant patents. What resources like books or podcasts would you guys recommend to learn more about starting a business or learning languages? For learning languages, we're actually writing blogs on our website, fabulingua.com, with a lot of like, I get super nerdy about all of these things. And I think it really helps for teachers and to be honest, even parents and learners to know how do we learn a language? Because you can skip a lot of stuff and avoid a lot of pitfalls that basically almost nullifies it's a lot of them like you're getting rid of any language learning with a lot of the pitfalls that are out there and the way it's done in a traditional method so we like that's what we do in our blog we get super deep about what the science is telling us about how languages are learned so if you're learning a language definitely go to our blog and consume that but in terms of starting a business mark you go ahead a fun one is reed hoffman's masters of scale you've probably heard of that one That's fun. And it's good. It's more or less high level. As you get a little bit more arcane and a little bit more in the weeds, the NFX podcast is cool. NFX podcast. I really like. And then, of course, there's A16Z podcast as well, which really dives sort of deeper. And then, you know, at a high level, if you're in high school or college, listening to How I Built This with Guy Rizzo, I think, you know, is great. Garros, so yeah. Garros, excuse me, Garros. It's really interesting and, and it's put in an entertaining way. Those other more arcane ones are, yeah, much more sort of deeper study, but they're cool too. And do you guys have any parting advice you would like to share? Well, I think if you are going to get into the entrepreneurial world, like take your first shot when you have the least at stake when you have the least level of responsibilities, when you're young and single, you know, do it. But when you do do that, do it underneath a mentor type folk that's done it before. That's the ideal situation. Don't be afraid to take a grunt job in a startup that's led or founded by 
somebody who's really got a lot of experience and has sort of been there before because that experience is incredible. Yeah, I was going to say my thing is I cannot say how important internships have been for me for either encouraging getting involved in certain areas or totally discarding like this is definitely not for me. And I think figuring out what's not for you is just as important as figuring out what is for you. And and I think there's something unique about an internship, you know, now that we've had some interns, you know, because you're either not paid or not being paid a lot, the amount of risk a company is willing to take about, hey, you know what, try this is actually quite high. And so in actual fact, you get access, it's a kind of weird thing, you get access to doing a lot more broader base of work in a company. And you also are unlikely to come in with a really solid set of skills that are going to like, you know, get you. So you, you get this really like high level view of the different parts of the company and you get to sort of try your hands at different parts of the company and really kind of get this understanding of like, how does a company work? What are the different parts of it? And because you get maybe to access more of it because you're, it's kind of a lower risk for the company. So I think it's a pretty unique situation, the intern type of situation. So I would recommend going for that. Leslie and Mark, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been amazing. Thanks so much for all your great questions. Will, you're a very good, you're a good podcast host. Thank you for, uh, for having us on. We're honored. For sure. As always, thank you for listening and please make sure you subscribe to get updated when new podcasts come out. I'm Will Burkhart and you've been listening to Studying Success.